Good morning. You're listening to The Legal Eagle with Marsha Chambers. Welcome to The Legal Eagles radio show where we explore the legal issues of the day, especially in Connecticut where we originate. We look at the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk to lawyers, judges, and folks connected to law in any number of ways. Today we welcome back Mike Lawler, Governor Malloy's top criminal justice policy advisor and mover and shaker and deputy OPM secretary for criminal justice. He's a former legislative heavyweight from East Haven and former co-chair of the legislature's judiciary committee, which helps him at times, I guess. (laughs) Mr. Lawler has a skill set few can match. He knows well how the legislature works, and that knowledge has helped him to get the criminal justice system in Connecticut moving in ways the state has never before seen. And so we welcome him back because much, and we are delighted to have you today, Mike, um, much has happened since your last appearance um, on our radio show as you've tried to get through a number of bills in the legislature during the last session. And recently the governor rolled out this year's version, right? He did, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yes. In two different parts, actually. Remember last year we combined it into two different bills. Mm -hmm. One dealing with how we treat young adults, meaning kids age 18 to 21. Mm-hmm. And, and another part of last year's bill was uh, bail reform, and changing the way we decide who gets locked up pre-trial, especially on relatively minor charges and relatively low bonds. So this year it's been separated into two different bills. And why is that? Uh, well, it, it turns out each one is a very complicated discussion. Plus a year ago, in addition to proposing bills, the governor asked two different entities to study uh, the best um, best way to move forward on these two topics. So mm-hmm. he asked the Juvenile Justice Policy Oversight Commission, mm-hmm. which is actually co-chaired by Representative Tony Walker, mm-hmm. who's from here in New Haven, as everyone knows, mm-hmm. uh, to look at whether or not we should raise the age of juvenile jurisdiction and whether we should treat young adults differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually spent a lot of time over the last year working through the different pros and cons of options and made a set of recommendations. And those recommendations are before the legislature as well, dealing with the best way to uh, handle young adults. So that's one uh, uh, set of bills, one from the governor, <clears throat> one from J.J. Pock dealing with that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, bail reform, a year ago, the governor asked the Sentencing Commission uh. to take a look at what other states are doing on the topic of bail, especially for low-level, nonviolent type offenders and make some recommendations. The Sentencing Commission has made their own recommendations, mm-hmm. and those are also uh, before the uh, Judiciary Committee uh, this year. So so there's two sets of bills on each of the two topics, and, and in addition to what the governor's proposed, what we have before the legislature are consensus-based recommendations from a group consisting of pretty much everyone in the criminal justice system, prosecutors, judges, victim advocates, So is uh, this police. the first year that any of this has come up before the legislative committees for a vote, or was there any vote last year? Uh, last year, the, the combined proposal directly from the governor was before the Judiciary Committee. committee. And, That's my recollection, yeah. Yeah, and, and so um, the, the problem there was twofold. Number one, <laughs> the uh, these pr- proposals were really new to the legislature, really mm-hmm. hadn't we'd be the first state in the country to treat 18 to 21 year olds like we do juveniles. Mm-hmm. So that's new. Mm-hmm. And the, the bail reform topic hadn't really been before the legislature in the past. Although many other states mm-hmm. have actually done that mm-hmm. most recently, New Jersey, New Mexico, uh, and just a week or two ago, Maryland's Supreme court ruled that they have to completely change their, their bail system. So, uh, 
There were new topics to the Connecticut legislature last year, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think people wanted to spend the time to understand it better. Mm -hmm. Plus, toward the second issue last year was as we got towards the end of the session, uh, two things happened. The, the budget crisis sort of overwhelmed discussion of anything. Right. And and secondly, I think the national political campaign started to go off the rails, you recall, when the Trump phenomenon started to emerge. And I think a, a lot right. of elected officials who were up for election got a little nervous about what was likely to happen. So Right, and they always get a little bit nervous when it comes to crime issues, just in general, you know, in this kind of situation, I guess. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was in the legislature, I first <clears throat> got elected in 1986. Wow. And uh, that was the time of Willie Horton and right. uh, rising crime rates. It was really a hot topic politically. And, and even to talk about criminal justice reform back then was... Uh, like touching the third rail, you know, right, it was right, a, right. A, a minefield to walk through. But in recent years, as the crime rates have come way, way down, <clears throat> it's a different uh, issue. And what we found in states around the country, mainly red states with very conservative legislatures and mm -hmm. governors, uh, they have pursued many of the same policies that Governor Malloy has proposed here in Connecticut. And, and so, uh, interesting to me, at least, in Connecticut, it's harder to get, uh, let's just pick on the Republicans for a second, <laughs> they tend to revert back to the Willie Horton style right. of talking about criminal justice reforms, whereas their counterparts in other states, even in the Deep South and the Red States, are, are actually advancing the ball pretty rapidly. So uh, there's a disconnect, but uh, hopefully uh, uh, we'll, we'll find well, consensus. Hopefully. Yes. Well, let's start talking first about bail. <clears throat> okay. Um, and so for folks who are accused, let's say, of a misdemeanor, What's the situation right now in Connecticut? And a misdemeanor is punishable by one year in jail, possibly, and a, a fine. And it's a low-level crime. And or if it's a B misdemeanor, it would be even less. So tell us about someone who's charged with that right now. Yeah. So the <clears throat> the details of this stuff get pretty complicated. So I'll skip. S skip we'll, the, yeah. won't go too far into the you, weeds. You but uh, suffice to say that there's a lot mm -hmm. of people sitting in jail today, as we sit here, mm -hmm. who are. Uh, in on a relatively low bond, right? let's say less than $20,000 total, mm -hmm. and who are charged with relatively minor stuff, mm -hmm. for example, misdemeanors. But it's very unusual that someone who's being arrested for the first time ever who has a misdemeanor charge is going to be locked up on a bond. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, so typically what we find is there on any given day, there are hundreds of people who uh, don't pose a public safety risk we're kind of like a nuisance mm -hmm. and who are homeless or mm -hmm. perhaps mentally ill, mm -hmm. uh, unemployed, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And they've uh, got two or three pending cases, all for minor stuff. And uh, they get arrested again. And, and out of exasperation, judges and prosecutors seek a bail that they're pretty confident this guy cannot post. And they end up sitting in jail for weeks and months in some cases. So the question is, is that really necessary? We know it's really expensive mm -hmm. to do that. We know. Yeah, how much does it cost for a day in jail? Well, on average, it's $168 per day per inmate. Wow. But the kind mm -hmm. of inmate we're talking about now, mentally ill, homeless, probably got a substance abuse issue going on. When they come in the door, they have to go through a very elaborate health assessment because that's mm -hmm. mandated by the Constitution. We have to provide treatment. Mm -hmm. A lot of these guys are going through detox. Some of them are HIV positive. We have to provide them. So th these expenses get pretty high pretty quickly for these high needs, <clears throat> low risk type inmates. So what the governor has proposed is saying, like, we can figure out a better system for this. Mm -hmm. uh, the default of just sending them to jail uh, doesn't 
you know, really costs us a lot of money. Doesn't make us any safer. They're going to get out relatively soon, anyways. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's make sure the court has other alternatives besides that. And mm-hmm. uh, so the, the governor has proposed that there be no money bail for people who are charged only with misdemeanors. No, is that new? Uh, it's something he proposed last year, uh-huh. and it's been refined a little bit. It's mm-hmm. being proposed again this year, mm-hmm. and there would be an exception for misdemeanors that involve dangerousness or violence. So, for example, a lot of the domestic violence yeah, charges yeah. tend to be misdemeanors, right. and in those cases, we know there's a very high risk in the moment, right, in the, the immediate right. aftermath of the arrest. So th- th- that would be different, and there's some other exceptions in there as well. But the, the point is, we do know that there's a lot of people sitting around. I mean, I've seen these people. I've talked to them. You know, they're they're they're... You know, they're, they're sad sacks, right? They're, they're, right, right. They're, and isn't the irony that when they finally get before a judge, they often walk? I mean, the judge might not impose anything. Well, what we've seen... very now, little. So I, I think a classic example of this would be someone who's been arrested three or four times over the uh-huh. last year for minor stuff. And then uh, they get arrested again. And I think there's a tendency to set a bail that everyone knows they can't post mm-hmm. just so they're locked up for a while. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think the problem is... Uh, the folks in the system, the judges, the prosecutors don't know what else to do, actually. And if they have a job. Some of them have jobs, right? Uh, and that's a real issue. They're if not they... working on Wall Street or, no, you know, no, they're not no, doctors no, and but, lawyers. But, right. but but a lot of people do have these, you know, um, entry-level sort of minimum right. wage jobs. Some of them have housing. Mm-hmm. And, and in almost all these cases, they lose their job, they lose their housing, they lose their connection with other health services they're getting. And so, you know, uh, all we know is if those things happen, the risk that you're going to commit crimes going forward actually go up. Right. And and we know, again, not to get too far into the into boring leads. details, right. but right. we know about uh, 16, 1,700 people every month go into jail pre-trial. In other words, mm-hmm. these are people who get arrested and can't post their bond. Mm-hmm. And we know a third of those people end up posting their bond after some number of days. Uh, another third end up going to court and getting sentenced to continued incarceration. Mm-hmm. But there's a third of them who end up going to court one day and they don't come back. And you, and that means that gone. You, they've gone to court, the prosecutors dropped the charges or they got time served or they got sentenced to probation or they got found not guilty. And and so we know at least five or 600 people every single month only spend a, a couple of weeks or a couple of months locked up pretrial, don't ultimately actually mm-hmm. get sentenced to any jail time and so our question is, what was the point of locking them up in the first place? Hmm. There's a suspicion mm-hmm. that in some cases people are held pretrial because that creates an incentive for them to plead guilty. In other words, the way you get out of jail is plead guilty. And right. I think most people would acknowledge that sounds like it's kind of the opposite of the way it should be. Yeah, but that's sort of how it works, I think. It, in practice, in yeah, practice I that, yeah. I think yeah, that yeah. happens yeah. a fair amount. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now other states have taken... Um, what have other states done that have been successful? You just mentioned a couple <clears throat> that you might be able to tell the Connecticut legislature about. Well, there's quite a few states that uh, really de-emphasize the role of money bail, mm-hmm. especially for lower-level offenses. Uh, Are you for, optimistic then this uh, session? Yeah, well, for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the governor's made a, a refined proposal this year, which I mm-hmm. think makes a lot of sense, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, also the sentencing commission, which as I said, consists of everybody, prosecutors, police, victim advocates, judges, judges right. they've also made some very, uh, significant proposals to change the system. And this comes as a consensus recommendation from all the people directly involved. So the legislature's got that as well. So and, the sentencing commission has said, do it. Yes. And, and that's oh. another bill before the legislature. The hearing, <clears throat> by the way, is Monday, March 20th. So it's a week from Monday. Okay. And, uh, uh, and also 
there are courts which are starting to rule that it's actually unconstitutional to hold people on relatively minor charges mm-hmm. simply because they're too poor to afford to post bail. Uh, right. Maryland's Supreme Court <clears throat> just a couple of weeks ago had that ruling. Mm. Uh, New Mexico, uh, New Jersey, mm. uh, and, and a number of other states, you know, they're in the process of that. Some federal courts have ruled this way. There's actually a case pending in Connecticut mm-hmm. before the appellate court where one of the issues is whether it's unconstitutional to discriminate against people because they can't afford to post bail in minor cases. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, just so people understand what we're talking about, if you or I got arrested tonight on relatively minor charges, Marsha, uh, mm. the, the, the police might set like a $5,000 bond or a $10,000 bond. Mm-hmm. And you can post that by simply hiring a bail bondsman mm-hmm. to post, to, to sign a promissory note that, that they'll be responsible for the bail. And the, and for example, for a $5,000 bond, the charge is going to be only a few hundred dollars. So mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing that you could put that on your credit card. I certainly could. Right. And so the only people who end up sitting in jail on these minor charges are people who don't have a credit card, don't have a bank account, don't, don't Poor. have access to cash, don't have a strong family that can come and do it for them. And, and what we know for sure is that 90% of the people who get arrested on these same charges end up posting the bail. They get out. So right, right. it's only the, the only people who don't get out are the people who are too poor to post it. It's got nothing to do with how serious the charges are. Right. It has everything to do with how much money you have access to. Right. So the legislature, now that it may be better versed, you have a you think you may have a better shot with regard to bail. This, yeah, well, someone it. once said, uh, a legislator, Bob Farr, a former legislator uh-huh. who I served with, um, he used to say that the bad ideas sail right through the legislature first time out of the box. <laughs> the good ideas typically take two or three times for the idea to sink in. But I, I think that's the case. Now, I think the fact we have consensus, all the people working in the system, mm-hmm. that the threat of litigation, we've mm-hmm. got... Supreme Court's elsewhere ruling in this fashion. Yeah, I mean, so, the handwriting's on the wall. Yes, it is. Right, so let's go back to uh, the idea of uh, 18 to 20-year-olds being tried as juveniles. We discussed that a while back. I know some legislators sort of raised their eyebrows and said, <laughs> and so how are you going to approach that issue? Yeah, so it's uh, it's another thing which, on first impression, people react to, and like mm-hmm. people say, well, are you saying a 20-year-old is the same as a 16-year-old? Right. No, we're not actually saying that. But the right. governor is saying, is that what we know for sure is that uh, your brain is not fully developed, not fully matured until you hit about 25. We know that, right? Right, right. And we know that younger people do stupid things that they would never ever do in a million years if they were a little bit older. So for example, when I was in college, I went to UConn. Had there been YouTube and Facebook and smartphones back then, I'm pretty sure I I would have had a hard time in a few of my elections. But nonetheless... um, that is an issue. That's it, definitely the truth these days. <laughs> so that being the case, plus add in the fact that if you get arrested now at 18 or 19 for anything, for shoplifting, for breach of peace, for being drunk and disorderly and affect that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that your name is going to be in the paper. You're mm-hmm. going to go to a court. Your docket will be public information, et cetera. And even if you don't get convicted, the fact that this that you got arrested and all these things happen will be there forever via a Google search because you know most towns put on their their local weekly newspaper, the police blotter who got arrested and all the charges. Well, actually, you know, that's changing a little bit. They're eliminating the names in a number of them. Some places. I yeah, know the some. New Haven Independent does right, that, right? right? But right. but I think for the most part, uh, it gets into the paper. paper so so right. what, the, what our proposal really is, say, let's have a system for dealing with 18 to 21-year-olds where at the outset, their names are not in the paper, mm-hmm. and the, their, when their case gets to court, 
uh, it's not all public unless and until a judge and a prosecutor agree that this case ought to be treated like a normal adult case. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that the vast majority of cases that come into the criminal court, the charges are either dropped or they Mm -hmm. get into some kind of diversionary program, which results in a dismissal and Mm -hmm. technically an erasure of the record, or they get probation. Mm -hmm. You can do all three of those things using the rules of juvenile court. Uh, people who need to be locked up for an extended period of time can be transferred to the regular docket and everything will be the same. So as they would was. be transferred to adult court and you would keep yeah. these folks up to age 21 in the juvenile court. Well, is that uh, using, we would, uh, we're proposing mm-hmm. using juvenile rules to govern how their cases are handled unless oh, okay. and until a judge decides that they should be handled like a normal adult kind of case. And, and what that, whether that means they go to the actual juvenile courthouse mm-hmm. or what actual prosecutors are dealing with, I mean, that's that all remains to be seen. But what we're proposing is let's use the juvenile procedural rules mm-hmm. to deal with the cases of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds up to the point a judge decides this ought to be handled under the regular adult rules. And the di- here, here's like one example of a big difference. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if, you, if you're 17 years old and you get arrested by the police tonight anywhere in Connecticut— uh, your case will not automatically go to court and be in front of a judge. What will happen first is a juvenile probation officer who is specially trained to sort of do this triage will look at your case and decide, does this need to be handled formally or can we figure out an informal way of handling this case? So mm-hmm. maybe the maybe the kid just needs to be screamed at or maybe the kid needs to go to a juvenile review board or some one of these informal options mm-hmm. that almost every town has now where uh, you, you know, people decide what the sanction should be, but it, it's not, there's no court, there's no judge, there's no prosecutor, mm-hmm. there's no defense attorney, there's, there's not all these procedural drama. Because mm-hmm. uh, in, even in the adult court, the majority of cases get handled in sort of an informal way. And, and so we're saying, if that's true, especially for younger kids who tend to act out in stupid ways mm-hmm. just because they're immature, let's deal with that in a way that doesn't, sort of give them a, 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 an indelible mark for the rest of their life that they'll have to explain. Because, you know, a lot of kids mm-hmm. can't get into college, can't get hired for certain jobs, mm-hmm. can't get financial aid, can't get uh, even housing under certain circumstances based on the fact that they were once charged with something, forget about convicted. And so uh, mm-hmm. now all uh, I can imagine people might be listening to this and say, well, you know, that sounds kind of like liberal, soft on crime, kind of <laughs> right. coddling kind of stuff. I said, well, here's what we know for sure. In Connecticut, uh, 10 years ago, we started the process of raging the age of juvenile court from 16 to 18. Mm-hmm. And when that was proposed, people had all the same concerns that they're articulating now about going from 18 to 21. And among other things, people say, you know, you're going to overwhelm the juvenile courts. Kids are going to get away with it. The the the, uh, the 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 predator type kids are going to escape punishment. So fast forward, it's been ten years now. Uh, all of these procedural rules have been up and running for six, seven, eight years total, and we know that the number of young people getting arrested now mm-hmm. is lower than it has ever been hmm. in your life or my life. I mean, it is dramatically down. The number of kids in detention, the number of kids in the juvenile training school, number of young people in adult prisons is way, way down. The number of reported crimes being committed are way, way down. So what we see are the real results of figuring out a better way to mm-hmm. deal with young people who are acting out. Now, if you commit murder or a serious crime like that, by all means, you're going to get treated as you would normally be treated. But yeah, well, the, let's talk a little bit about that, the, mm-hmm. the charges. So I understand, you know, you're talking about certain types of cases that don't necessarily rise to the level of violence. But what if someone is accused of shooting someone or robbing a store 
where does that and that person is 17 or 18. Yeah, so under I mean, the existing juvenile rules, right, mm-hmm. there's mandatory transfers to adult court, which I are see. all the class A felonies and most of the class B felonies, right? So right. there's already a mechanism where these cases get transferred. Part of the governor's proposal this year is actually to add more to that mandatory transfer. So, for example, hmm. a number of years ago, uh, the legislature took robbery first degree out of the category of mandatory transfers to adult court and put it into the discretionary transfer. And, oh, and interesting. I'll have to get into a lot of details, but I won't. Right. But the discretionary <laughs> transfers are very difficult to do under the current rules. So what we have proposed in our bill is to change those rules to make it easier to transfer high-risk, dangerous kids to the adult court, even if they're 16 or 17 years old. Is that different from last year? Yes. Well, it was, as the proposal was introduced last year, it wasn't in there. But as we talked to police and others, it was very clear that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. And so that was in the final version of the proposal, which never got voted on. But what we've proposed this year incorporates where we left off at the end of last year. And a lot of changes were made. For example, one change that was created concern was the idea of closed courtrooms. In the juvenile courts today in Connecticut, they're closed. They're closed. The public is not allowed. And they do each case separately. So the the parties are brought in, the case is heard, they go out and the next ones come in versus the adult court. Everybody's in there together, including press, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So most states or many states- Can let us in? Yes. You most states <laughs> open juvenile court to the public. The, the records are sealed, but you can go in and watch. Right. And so we are very open to changing our rules to that system here. And certainly for the the, the young adult group, we're proposing to add to the, the juvenile type procedures. So the 18 to 21 year old. So- it, it's not so, so much, I could cover it. Yes. And you could print the names if you heard them in the courtroom, but what you couldn't do, the, the names would not be released by the police on the time of the arrest. The details of the case can be arrested, but not the names. And, uh, so how would we know that the person's in court if we didn't know the name from the police? Well, you could cut, you could cover, <laughs> you could cover the <laughs> you courts, right? Court, you just sit in the court. Well, it is a little difficult, you know, if What's you that? don't, if you don't know the name of the defendant, uh, that's true. But you, the court would be open. So all I'm saying is uh, okay, this is right. what's what goes on in most courts. And and even under our current system, we have a status called, and again, we're going to get complicated again. Mm-hmm. We have a status called youthful offender where you're in yes. adult court, but your your case is confidential, but people can, you know. So we're proposing that in, in all those cases, the courtroom would be open, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And and the court, the case would proceed as normal. It's just that there wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to go online and see the names of all the pending cases and things like that. Right. Well, that does make it, it's a whole other different press issue, but it does make it more difficult. I mean, if I'm following a case and I know the name of a person, obviously I can go to the court, find, find, the, find the court where the person is going to be and, and sit and, and watch it. Well, keeping the way that made, the way this would play out is that the serious kinds of cases, the cases mm-hmm. presumably that the journalists would be interested in, right. would be in adult court anyway. Would be in adult court, yeah. yeah. So we would have a different situation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fast. Well, you know, actually the weeds make a difference. They do. <laughs> and don't forget, the goal of all of this is that there be less crime and fewer victims. I right. mean, the reason this is being done is because we now can demonstrate that if you treat young people a certain way, the odds that they're ever going to get into a serious life of crime go way, way, way down. This mm-hmm. is the so-called school-to-prison pipeline phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And and what we haven't talked about yet is a lot of effort being invested in schools to ensure that students are only uh, suspended and expelled when it's absolutely necessary because we can... There's plenty of evidence now that suspending and expelling young people hmm. in school, even in elementary school, significantly increases the odds that they're going to end up in prison down the road. And so if you want less crime, 
You need to start early. You need to have interventions that are effective, that don't just sound like they're tough, but they actually work. And, and these are the best practices that we've been implementing here in Connecticut for 10 years, and the results speak for themselves. I mean, not to brag too much, but it's worth noting yes. that over the last three years, Connecticut has had the biggest reduction in violent crime of any state in the country by a lot. We're down 23% over wow. three years. That's impressive. Violent, reported violent crime. Not talking about arrests, talking about reports of crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, the national average was down 4% over that same period of time. And there's only, uh, I think there's only six states that actually dropped it every single one of the last three years, Connecticut, first and foremost. And so, so and we see that trend continuing last year, for which we don't have full data yet. Mm-hmm. And the arrests are already down this year compared to last year. So, so it's clear that this is working. Wow. That, yeah. So you're working with the schools, obviously. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there's a whole bunch of initiatives. One is called the School-Based Diversionary Initiative. The governor's put a lot of money into that. They target schools that want to have their help come in, who have a relatively high rate of suspensions and expulsions. And, uh, uh, and, and within a couple of years, you can see a dramatic reduction in the number of suspensions and expulsions. And one of the best examples in the entire state of this phenomenon is here in New Haven, where uh, for a long time, our school system, you know, we have an eight-year-old in the third grade over at right. Nathan Hill School right. ourselves. Right. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the crime rate is way down in New Haven. The number of expulsions are way down. The number of young people locked up around the state is way down from New Haven. That's great. So the governor also talked about something that I know nothing about, but perhaps you will explain to our listeners, something called Three Days Count. And, and uh, what does that title mean, and what, how does that involve the state of Connecticut? Three Days Count is a national initiative to reduce the number of people that end up spending a short period of time in jail, pretrial, on bail, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is part of the bail initiative? Correct, but it's a national, it's a national movement, movement. Of, of which Connecticut is like a co-signer, I guess, okay. it's, or an endorser. Okay. And, and there's a lot of research that shows if you even if you only spend three days locked up in jail, mm-hmm. that has a very large impact on the rest of your life. In other really? words, you start to think of yourself as a criminal, an ex-con. You know, it 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 goes a long way towards breaking your spirit, eliminating any sense that you have that you might be able to succeed, notwithstanding whatever uh, whatever mistake you've made. So, uh, what we're and, and this kind of goes back to the point I was making earlier, which is like, let's reserve our jail incarceration for people mm-hmm. who really need to be there mm-hmm. and and we know that there's a lot of people that go in for a very short period of time a couple of weeks three weeks four weeks something like that and that that the the damage that is done in that Inside. period of time mm-hmm. to the individual mm-hmm. you know and, and the how complicated it makes them to get a job or go to school going forward the fact that they have been locked up even for a short period of time is uh is significant and so the three days is is, th- there's, is, a, there's, is the there's research that indicate if if you spend three days or more locked up you've really become damaged goods in in your own view and in the view of society and and there, there's plenty of occasions where that's absolutely appropriate and required and is a public safety issue but there's also a lot of cases where it's not right uh so let's uh, speaking of prisons uh and private prisons uh, before President Obama left uh, office, uh, he made some very major changes with regard to um, private prisons. And you want to talk about that and what the current attorney general has done? 
Sure. Well, we're talking about private for-profit prisons. Private for-profit. Corporations right. with stockholders yeah, and right. investors, et cetera. Right. Who, and many states have them. A lot of states have them, mm-hmm. and the federal government uses them extensively. And We don't have them. We do not have them. They're mm-hmm. prohibited under Connecticut state law. We've never had them. We've mm-hmm. never put inmates in mm-hmm. private for-profit prisons, uh, and, and we have a lot of uh, protections. You know, uh, if, if you want to hear the a, a very sort of passionate um criticism of private for-profit prisons talk to the professional correctional officers that work in our prisons mm-hmm. who are real law enforcement they meet high standards they're very well managed we have very low incident we, we have not had a real over-the-wall escape in more than 20 years in this state wow we have very low rate of uh inmate on inmate uh, assaults we have mm-hmm. a very low rate uh of inmate on staff assaults and, and it's dropping every single year so so we have very good outcomes, you know, not to mention our crime rate falling, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You compare that with states that use these private for-profit prisons. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, we read about this all the time. There's escapes, there's murders of uh, correctional officers, and, and there's all kinds of abuse. And so uh, under President Obama, a decision was made since the federal prison population is falling like the state prison population is, there was a projection that they would need, uh, they wouldn't need to contract with private for-profit companies to provide prison capacity. And Mm -hmm. what President Obama said is, uh, we will not enter into new contracts. We won't extend existing contracts. We project that by the time all of our contracts have elapsed or or expired, that we won't need that capacity anymore at all. So that Mm -hmm. was the decision that President Obama made. Uh, President Trump has immediately reversed that. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think the main focus of that is to use private for-profit prisons to incarcerate undocumented immigrants who are taken into custody in these ICE sweeps that seem to be starting uh, all over the country. And and that is extremely controversial. There is, you know, I could go into a, a long mm-hmm. story about what's mm-hmm. wrong with private prisons, but mm-hmm. let me just put it this way. If you like public safety, if you don't like escapes, if you don't like prison riots, et cetera, et cetera, you should really not like private for-profit prisons. Right, and this was these are companies that contributed heavily to President Trump's campaign. I mean, they had a relationship with him beforehand. Yeah, that's a factual that's statement. Factual. That's actually yes. true. Uh, but it's also worth noting uh, another issue people sometimes say is that they're cheaper than government-run uh-huh. prisons. Well, they're actually not. They actually cost a lot more. They cherry-pick their inmates. And, and when all is said and done, uh, they, they actually are more expensive. They're easier to get up and running because mm-hmm. you don't have to cite them and plan them and get bonding. I mean, you could put them up overnight almost. Uh, but right. but in terms of once they're up and running, they're actually more expensive than using real uh, correctional professionals to run your prison. Right, and you just mentioned something that maybe we should go into now, and that is rounding up documented and undocumented residents. Um, And uh, one of the reasons I called you a couple of weeks ago about coming on the show was that was the the day that uh, Governor Malloy's directive to the state police and local police officers, uh, uh, police chiefs around the the state, went and came came over the, the wire, basically saying, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to become part of... Uh, the federal operation. You have your own choices and we will back you. Could you talk a little bit about how that all rolled out and what was happening behind the scenes? Sure. I mean, it, first of all, it's fascinating. Second it is, of all, it is totally fascinating. I, I've had to learn an awful lot about immigration law uh-huh. over the past, really the past few years. So it pays to go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> That's true too, but you don't learn this stuff in law school. Trust me on that. But uh, in any event, um, 
So the governor didn't actually issue a directive. What mm-hmm. he what he did is he issued a memorandum with advice uh-huh. and That's recommendations, right? right? right. Yes. Because the governor can't order towns to do things, right. local police departments, et cetera. But what he said was uh, several things. Number one, uh, that he was making, uh, uh, he was providing advice that is coming forth from a lot of governors and attorneys general around the country. Uh, and first and foremost, the federal government cannot uh, uh, uh forcibly uh, cannot require local or state law enforcement to enforce federal immigration laws. That's a mm-hmm. federal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's plenty of Supreme Court cases that say the federal government can't sort of uh, enlist mm-hmm. uh, mandatorily mm-hmm. local law enforcement to do their stuff anymore that we can force the feds to do our stuff. I mean, it's right. this is state sovereignty for a reason. Right. Now, you could certainly cooperate, cooperate and, and work with the feds and, and president Trump has reinstated something called 287 G, which is a, a mechanism by which a local police department can in effect be deputized and, and therefore would have the authority to carry out federal immigration law. But except in the case where you're actually deputized to do it, you know, the new Haven police can't actually enforce federal immigration law because they don't have the authority to do that yeah. any more than the FBI can enforce our drunk driving laws in Connecticut. I mean, they're two, two different, different governments. It's right. totally different. So what the governor said is you're not obligated to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, uh, 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 former Justice uh, Scalia, the uh, late Justice Scalia, yes. who I think no one ever accused of being a liberal or no, no, anything no, like hardly. that. <laughs> he, he wrote several decisions, including one on a, a federal gun control law, the Brady Law, which basically mm-hmm. said that the, that the federal government can't force local law enforcement to carry out federal um, laws governing background checks for uh, gun purchasers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and so, and he was very emphatic in that. And, mm-hmm. and there was a similar Supreme Court decision about Obamacare, where one of the provisions of the original Obamacare law required states to do X, Y, and Z. And the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government can't require states to do things like that. That's that's a state responsibility. Right, right. So, and, and the same thing here. Uh, so there's that. But the real problem, and, and Governor Malloy was articulating this in his advice, is the reason we are so concerned is mm-hmm. if immigrant communities perceive that reaching out to the local police is in effect reaching out to the immigration police, then people will stop calling. If right. they're victims of crime, right. they won't mm-hmm. ask for help. If right. they're witnesses to crime, they will not cooperate with the police. And when that happens, you know, community policing breaks down, crime goes up, and... and it's interesting. I had a conversation with our uh, police chief in Brantford, uh, Kevin Halloran, and he said, we have worked so hard to develop uh, relationships within within our communities, uh, and and Branford does have a number of documented and undocumented folks, um, and and we don't want to lose that ability. We we want that to continue. We want them to call us when they need help or when there's a, a situation. So police chiefs are aware uh, of of have, how long it has taken to develop those relationships. And you know, uh, it, it I think people don't really appreciate how many undocumented immigrants are actually in our state you know no one knows for sure the exact number but it's well north of a hundred thousand it's probably closer to two hundred thousand it's mm-hmm. it's a lot right mm-hmm. and in the uh, whole state and in the whole state yes right. and mostly in cities i think probably for the most part but oh, yeah. you know well, uh, in different areas we can talk more about that but mm-hmm. it's 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 i think people are only are now finding about out about people that they know mm-hmm. they've worked with mm-hmm. they do business with all the time who right. are actually undocumented i think people have this mental image 
of, you know, very poor, unfortunate people having to struggle across a border in Mexico. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a fair amount of that, but there's an awful lot of people who came here as tourists who never went, who never left they're from all different countries. They're from Asia. They're from Eastern Europe. They're from Ireland. I mean, there's a lot of undocumented immigrants in this country who are in harm's way, given the, the, the unbridled authority that president Trump has given to ice. But uh, the point I want to get back to is I'll give you one example, a very recent example, a mm -hmm. real tragedy mm -hmm. where the fact that uh, an undocumented immigrant was afraid to call the police and ask for help where mm -hmm. she ended up dead. And that just happened in Bridgeport a couple of weeks ago where a, a guy who himself was undocumented uh, stabbed to death a woman who was apparently his girlfriend and she was undocumented. And according to her family, the abuse had been going on for some time and she mm -hmm. was afraid to call the police mm -hmm. because she, from what you're seeing on TV, the Trump election, et cetera, she felt that if the police found out who she was, she'd be they arrested. determined she'd be undocumented, that she would be arrested and handed over to ICE and ultimately deported. And this is the concern, right? If people are afraid that reaching out to, for help will mean they themselves will be deported. And, and this woman had a child who was a U.S. citizen because the child was born here and was separated from their children. You know, these are the kinds of unintended, I'll just assume they're unintended consequences mm. that, that give us pause. Mm. And, and interestingly, and she was right. She would, well, yeah, I mean, she I was mean, right. I mean, had she lived? I mean, the point is her, her reaction wasn't. No, it wasn't imagined down right. in El Paso, Texas, a woman applied for a restraining order and was against her, her boyfriend or whomever who was abusing her. And there was a court hearing on that when the, apparently the boyfriend knew that when the date of the court hearing was the boyfriend calls ice says my ex who's applied for a restraining order is going to be in court at this time and this place and i grabbed her as she was the victim she was going in for the hearing to, for her to get a protective order ice grabs her and deports her in front of her children you know these are the these oh. are the kinds of things that we're seeing more and more of and the more you see this on tv the, the less trust <clears throat> the local immigrant communities have with the local police and the less trust with the local police mean that there's going to be more crime. And, that, and that's really our concern. I'll tell you another story. Um, in, a, in a community in Connecticut, there was a woman who uh, was undocumented. She had three minor children who were all U.S. citizens because they were born here. Uh, she was living in a domestic violence shelter mm. because of abuse. Mm -hmm. And she brought her children to the school bus stop to put them on the school bus to go to school. The bus driver opened the door, said, those children are illegal immigrants. Trump is president now. They can't go to school. When when he said that to her, she assumed, you know, the bus driver works for the government, that they were on to her. So she and her children disappeared from the homeless shelter and haven't been seen since. And so this is the kind of uh, uh, a consequence <clears throat> of talking about demonizing all these immigrants. And, and, right. uh, and I mean, it's a real political issue, and I think the governor's been very clear. The solution to this issue, let's fix the immigration law. Let's not right. just you know, target these millions upon millions of hardworking immigrants that have come into our community, uh, many of whom came in with documentation and just stayed. And, and so it, it's, it's a system that's broken. And I don't know about your ancestors, Marsha, but <laughs> mine came here from Ireland mm -hmm. in the 1840s and mm -hmm. 1850s. Mm -hmm. And back then mm -hmm. you didn't fill out any paperwork. You just showed up, you, showed you got up, off the boat, right. you talked to somebody and you started working right. and, 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 uh, and, when I think about this, I know the governor feels the same way because like me, he's comes from Irish immigrants who came mm -hmm. during the potato famine. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of those ancestors and how they were treated when they arrived here and, and, and 
the, the great contribution they made to this country. Oh, right. It's absolutely true. Yes. yes. Um, it's true for me, too. <laughs> Not Ireland, but Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, give us, let's uh, just go back for one second to a topic that we've discussed before, uh, before the Sentencing Commission, which is the status now, another issue of uh, the problems of the sex offenders list. Mm-hmm. And I know you were working on that. Um where are we at now on that? So uh, the, the Sentencing Commission has uh, been charged by the legislature. I mean, they passed a law directing the Sentencing Commission to figure out whether or not we can have a better system for registering sex offenders and for putting the information online. Right. Here's the problem they're trying to solve. Right now we have well over 5,000 people on the public online sex offender registry. Uh, by, not, name, by name. By name. By name and photo mm-hmm. and address, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And... There's a lot of people who are very high-risk, dangerous sex offenders who are not on that registry because when their cases were being handled, they were able to get a plea bargain so that the charges they got convicted of were not the ones that put you on the sex offender registry. Uh. So, for example, you break into someone's home and, and rape someone. Mm. You know That's both a burglary and a sexual assault. And sometimes during the plea bargaining process, the lawyer says, my guy's willing to plead guilty and go to prison for five years just let them plead to the burglary and not the sex offense. And a lot of times the victims don't want there to be a trial because you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you say, well, it's if we can avoid the trial, get five years in prison, it's worth it. But because of only being convicted of burglary, you're not going to be on the sex offender registry. Conversely, there's plenty of people who are on the sex offender registry who committed crimes that do require registration. But in those cases, there's no reason to think they're high-risk sex offenders. Like, for mm-hmm. example... Uh, the classic statutory rape where you know the high school senior and the high school freshman uh, are dating and they have mm. sexual intercourse mm. and perhaps the woman becomes pregnant and then one thing leads to another, kid gets arrested. Now, no one is saying that's okay, mm-hmm. but you'd be hard-pressed to argue that that's an indicator of a sexual predator going forward. And so right. 10 years, 20 years down the road, if that person is on the sex offender registry, you can just imagine uh, all the collateral damage that comes there. And And there's this third issue, and that is, when, when you identify people by putting their names out in public like that, uh, now keep in mind that all conviction information is public anyway, so it's not mm-hmm. like it's a secret who's convicted of what crimes. But by putting specific people with photos and current addresses online... Right. It's the current addresses that are a real issue. And, and you're almost making it impossible for those persons to find housing, let alone employment. Mm-hmm. And if, mm-hmm. if you don't have good housing... You don't have employment. The odds that you're going to reoffend in some way start to go way up. Mm-hmm. And and we do know that living in homeless shelters, especially in our major cities, are quite a few registered sex offenders who basically have no other option. And and if if you want to ensure that sex offenders recidivate, the best way to do that is to make sure they're homeless and unemployed. And 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 so it's the unintended consequence of the policy. So what they're looking at is. And we'd have a better system, which many states do, to make sure the people who are on the sex offender registry are the high-risk sex offenders, regardless of what crime they got convicted of. It's based on right, what they actually right. did. And the people who are not high-risk sex offenders uh, are, are not on the public registry. Now, I know you had a committee within the Sentencing Commission looking at this. Mm-hmm. So are you ready to come up with a new report? Or, or uh, I think or? Their, their report is due next year, not this year. Oh, they recently year. Okay. had a public hearing at the Capitol, which was really fascinating. It lasted all day. There were a lot of... Uh, huh. Uh, convicted sex offenders and their families who participated. There were a lot of victims who participated. And what was really clear when people talking about how it actually works, there was a clear sense that we could do a much better job. And other states Mm -hmm. have a job where they focus only on high-risk sex offenders. 
based on who they are and what they did as opposed to which specific crime they did or didn't get convicted of. And I, mm-hmm. and I think, in, in my view, I would prefer a system like that. Minnesota has such a system, mm-hmm. but a bunch of other states have moved in that direction recently. Mm-hmm. So as you look at your work for the next, let's say, four or five months, um, do, does the immigration issue sort of rise to the top? How are you, what's, what, what's the main issue other than what's, what, other than the governor's plan, which you obviously have to concentrate on, but is there anything new in the state that the opiate thing, something that you're going to say, okay, I may have to redirect my thinking for a few months. Well, you know, there's a lot of different stuff going on. The opiates being one thing you just mentioned mm-hmm. that. Uh, but uh, I think it's always important to keep our eye on the ball, right? And since day one in the governor's administration, we've had our criminal justice priorities are these. Number one, reduce crime, especially violent crime. Mm-hmm. Number two, reduce spending. And number three, restore confidence in the criminal justice system. So uh, on the there's scoreboards for all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. see what the reported crime rate is. You mm-hmm. can see how much money we're spending. Right. Uh, it's a little bit intangible, the extent to which people have confidence in the system. This is where the relations with the immigrant community or racial profiling, all these other things come into play. Uh, the victims' attitudes towards whether or not they got justice. These are things we're mm-hmm. trying to address. But let's go back to the first uh, priority, which is reducing crime. Whatever it takes to reduce violent crime, we're doing all of those things. And mm-hmm. there's plenty of stuff we haven't even mentioned during this conversation that are, that are currently underway. Many things don't even require legislation to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of reducing spending... You know, our prison population is today, it's about 14,600, mm-hmm. right? Keep in mind it was at 20,000 in 2008. So it's a dramatic reduction in That's our prison population. Right. We've closed a lot of prisons. We'll be closing another big part of a prison in the next couple of weeks. Which one? Uh, we'll be announcing it shortly. Shucks. <laughs> uh, and, and, but the, the budget proposal that the governor's made assumes that we're going to close one entire prison mm-hmm. plus four sections. Of, of existing prisons. You know, typically we have these very old mm-hmm. areas and mm-hmm. prisons take them offline. They're very expensive to operate. But all this is because the inmate population is way down. And the reason the inmate population is way down is there's fewer and fewer people coming into prison through the front door. It's not, mm-hmm. we're not releasing more people. We're, mm-hmm. we're actually releasing mm-hmm. fewer. It's the, it's the number of people committing crimes, getting arrested, coming into prison that continues to drop. So we're saving a lot of money this year the Department of Corrections budget will be $73 million lower than what it was two years ago. That's a pretty big That's a reduction. Very That's more than 10%. Yes. So, uh, so, uh, and we see a steadily uh, dropping number for that. Um, and the opiate deaths, they continue across the state. Yeah. Um, the, uh, younger people, uh, it's so sad to see these obits. You know who it is, and uh, there's no cause of death, and you know what the cause of death is, and they're yeah. 22 years old. It's a real problem. Uh, we, it's, it's interesting in a bunch of different ways. I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's tragic, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, there are some interesting aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, there's a, a very significant racial disparity here. Almost all of mm-hmm. the deaths we're talking about are white kids, yeah. you know, or when I yeah. say kids, 20s and 30s, typically. Right, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and it, it's heroin laced with, uh, fentanyl or whatever. Right. It, and, and we are interviewing, uh, a lot of the recently sentenced new prisoners. Oh, good. And, and interestingly, uh, if, if it's a white prisoner, typically they're in prison because of an opiate related issue. And in almost all cases, their opiate dependency started with a legal prescription. <laughs> so, which is very interesting. Yeah. African Americans and Latinos almost no indication of opiate addiction coming through the front door, but a lot of these uh, uh, African-American and, and Latino 
newly uh, sentenced inmates are coming in. A lot of them have gunshot wounds and stab wounds, and almost all of them have this very extraordinary uh, personal uh, trauma that they've been through in their lives, which is not in any way to minimize the seriousness of the crimes they've committed, but it's just pointing out that uh, this is that school-to-prison pipeline phenomenon. A lot of these kids are coming through uh, childhoods, et cetera, where they never had a, forget about a second chance, they never had a first chance. So right. um, so it, it's the more you see who's coming into the system, understand what brought them there. And how they got their drugs. Uh, it makes it easier to come up with responses. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think as most people are aware, we've tried to make available to all law enforcement agencies and first responders is Narcan, this antidote mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. A, to an overdose, but that's just a temporary solution, right? It's not right. It's not solving the opiate dependency, et cetera. There's been legislation passed limiting the amount of prescriptions you can get. Mm-hmm. You know, almost all these people are starting off with getting a, like a 30-day prescription to, to oxycodone or something like that, and, right. and it, one right. thing leads to another, and, uh, and, and, it, and ultimately, you know, one of the interesting facts is that... Uh, it's terrifying, but interesting that the, the cost of buying heroin has come down so much. Yes, and the ability to mix in this uh, uh, this this artificial this this uh, fentanyl fentanyl right is is so easy to sort of uh, to escalate the effect of the heroin. Uh, you know, the, it's hard to imagine there's a way to impact it, given the fact that you know we've tried to interdict this stuff on our borders for many, many years, and it's over time, over the last 40 years, it's just gotten cheaper and easier to get your hands on. So it's pretty clear that the criminal justice system is not the solution to that particular problem. That's right. Well, it looks like our time is up, Mike. I mean, it, it goes really fast when the topics are so interesting, and we will have you back at the end of the legislative session, maybe a little bit later on, so you can give us an update on how everything fared and maybe talk a little bit more about immigration. Thank you so much for coming to our studio today. Uh, and we are uh, fascinated by all of the uh, topics that we discussed. So go, our listeners can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast and to listen to the wide variety of show, shows that the station produces each day. So thank you again, Mike, for coming in. Thanks, Marsha.